nobody tells a joke as good as you. Every line, every joke, everything you say, it makes me fall down laughing. Oh, You're oh, a million oh, laughs. Oh, okay, <laughs> hey, hey, in that case, <clears throat> let me tell you about my nearsighted cousin. He's so rich, his automobile's fitted with a prescription windshield. Okay, tell me about him. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. So Nick Jackson, how fare thee on this December Eve? Times are interesting. I think uh, as of this recording, our coding is going back to purple or possibly red. I'm sounding really ignorant as I say that, but all non-essential businesses are shutting down, so... It's going to be an interesting winter. Yeah, what's funny is uh, this is going to this episode is going to release in February. (laughs) So it'll be an interesting little time capsule for people. (laughs) People give me like a lower star reviews. Like, why is he reminding us of that time as though we'll be out of it by February? Yeah, we will still be in it by February. (laughs) But this is not a COVID podcast. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We are a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, of course, I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media. We are at Lunatic Daring on Facebook and Twitter, and Instagram. Also check out lunaticdaring.com, where you will find links to our latest episodes, as well as our bibliography and our watch list. We have started our journey into The Muppet Show, into the five seasons of The Muppet Show. I'm very excited. (laughs) I'm still, I'm having fun. It's the best research I've ever done. (laughs) What I've been loving is it's research that I can sit down and do with my kids. This afternoon, my kid was virtual learning, and when she was done, she was like, well, what can I do? Because... Kids can entertain themselves unless you have something to do, and then they want you to entertain them. So I said, well, I have to watch these two episodes for the podcast tonight. And so I watched them with my kid. She loves them, even though she doesn't have a clue who Jim Neighbors is. I also didn't have a clue who Jim Neighbors was. Nor should you. (laughs) And nor should she, definitely. She's seven. But she thought it was funny. So uh, we got a couple of fine episodes tonight. So uh, let's get rolling. It's The Muppet Show with our special guest star, Miss Rita Moreno. So, Nick, as we're watching The Muppet Show, there are going to be a few guest stars that are important to me, specifically women who made young Chad, me as a child, aware of girls. Our first episode tonight, episode number 105 with Rita Moreno, is one of those episodes. You know, Chad, I'm not even going to be weird or give you grief about this. That makes absolute sense. She was amazing. It would take too long for me to rattle off all of her career achievements of actor, singer, and dancer Rosa Dolores Alverio, uh, known to the world as Rita Moreno, but I'll do my best. She was born in Puerto Rico in 1931 and a few years later moved to Long Island with her mother and took her stepfather's surname. She landed her first Broadway role at 13 under the name Rosita Moreno, and her first film was at 19. She had small parts in Singing in the Rain and The King and I, which are huge movies, but was generally unsatisfied with making movies. That didn't stop her from absolutely owning the role of Anita in the big screen adaptation of Bernstein and Sondheim's West Side Story. More credits include, and there are a lot, but she was in Mike Nichols' great film Carnal Knowledge. She did six seasons on the children's television workshop show The Electric Company, on which she did the opening line of the show... That was her for six years. She did appearances on The Love Boat, Golden Girls, The Cosby Show, Miami Vice, Law & Order. She had a run on the HBO prison drama Oz. 
and the 90s animated series Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego as the voice of, guess who? Carmen Sandiego? That is right. That's amazing. I actually do remember that show from when I was a kid, so this is somehow more relevant. Moreno is also in the exclusive EGOT Club. She has an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in West Side Story in 1961, a Grammy for Best Album for Children for the Electric Company album in 1972, a Tony for Best Featured Actress in a play called The Ritz in 1975, and an Emmy for Individual Performance in a Variety or Music Program for a guest shot she did on this little thing called The Muppet Show. Recently, she starred in Netflix's remake of the 80s sitcom One Day at a Time, and she will appear in Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story, if it ever comes out. <laughs> it was supposed to be out this Christmas, and it's definitely not coming out anytime soon. Rita's a powerhouse. <laughs> she won an Emmy for this episode. This was the performance that got her her EGOT, that filled it out for her. It was a great episode. Episode 105 uh, was shot in, like, June 1976 and uh, premiered in September in a lot of markets, I'd say a majority of markets, this was the first episode that ever aired of The Muppet Show. It was written by Jack Burns, Jerry Jewell, Jim Henson, and Mark London, same as last time. Directed by Peter Harris, same as last time. Spoiler for the next episode, exact same people uh, writing and directing them. That will change some, but for these early episodes, it's just the same guys. There's only one new face in this episode. Did you, did you see one? I'm blanking on who would have been new. The only new character we got, and it's not a huge character, is the sadistic musician Marvin Suggs and his Muppaphone, which is one of Frank Oz's, I think, odder characters. But besides that, this is pretty much a bunch of people that we already know. Before we really get into it, though, I did want to bring up uh, one person. As we've gone through the show, we've talked about the various Muppet performers that, come here, that, that have come up and joined the Muppets. And one person we haven't really talked about is a woman named Erin Oscar. Erin Oscar was only on the first season of The Muppet Show. But what's important is she was the only woman, and she did the voice and operated Janice and Hilda and Wanda. And if you watch this season, you'll notice that Janice's voice is very different. It is weird that, like, these female characters started off with female voices and ended up with men doing their voices. Erin was born in Turkey and raised in Michigan, which is an interesting combination. She also worked on the Emmett Otter and performed in the Muppet movie, but she left after the first year and retired from the Muppets to focus on her family because, you know, they were shooting in the UK and her family was back in Michigan. So she didn't like to travel. She did some stage work with the National Shakespeare Company, uh, playing Hero in Much Ado About Nothing and Ophelia and Hamlet. But she's most known for, she later founded the sag after a Puppeteers Caucus within the Screen Actors Guild and was their chairwoman, unionizing the puppeteers and with the rest of the actors. She was also a puppeteer on the 1990 cult classic Frankenhooker, if anyone remembers that one. I've seen a trailer for that. <laughs> but she ended up being known as a labor leader and a SAG leader. In 1991, SAG gave her an award for Outstanding Service to the Union. Unfortunately, she died of cancer in 1993 at the age of 44. I was watching the credits of this episode, and I realized that Aaron Oscar was the one person we hadn't talked about that was listed. So I wanted to give her a little shout out as one of the early cast members of The Muppet Show and one of the only women in these early days. Here's one problem I have with, not problem I have with this episode, but because it's a great episode, but there's really not a backstage story. Well, they, they lampshade the fact that it's a running gag. It's, there's something there, but there's not a, the nature of the conflict isn't there. Like there's no through line. Not really a whole lot to discuss as far as the backstage story goes, but that's okay. Cause plenty of awesome stuff happens on stage. 
We open with Kermit the Frog coming out and telling a very terrible joke. We have music, comedy, 225 dancing elephants who unfortunately left their costumes at home because they forgot to pack their trunks. I gave him that joke. I wish I gave it right back. How would you describe our opening number? How do I describe? Um, I liked it a lot. The humanoid Muppet was a little terrifying. I'll be completely yep. honest. Yeah, the French, the Frenchman, the Frenchman. Yeah, is is that his name, the Frenchman? No, 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 no. He doesn't have a he doesn't have a name, but he's a you know. It's supposed to be the the act is a um. It's called a. It's spelled it's spelled like we would spell the word Apache, but it's actually called an Apache dance. Apache, I believe, is a. It's kind of it's based on a French word from the underworld, but it is this type of dance where a man and a woman dressed as criminals basically beat the hell out of each other. Some people think it's actually meant to simulate uh, a, a pimp and a prostitute and their relationship with each other. I took it as her being a jilted lover for most of it. That's how they played it in this. Yes. In this, it is a jilted lover, but it is meant to be combative. It is meant to be a man and a woman, but they're always wearing, you notice, you know, he's got the big mustache and he the beret and he looks like a sleazy French criminal and she looks like a, a, a mall from a gangster movie. They dance to some music. It's actually an instrumental version of a song called Adios Muchachos. In the suit, as you said, the terrifying Frenchman was actually John Lovelady, um, one of the kind of, let's say, second-tier puppeteers from around this time. Uh, so you like this one? Yeah. No, I like the, between the cuts of her swinging the empty, I guess, would you call it a puppet at that point? Well, I mean, do you know what a cowboy switch is? Probably in everything but name. It comes from old Western films, right? A cowboy switch is when you have a, a stuntman do a stunt, like say fall flat on his face, right? Or like fall off of a building and they fall out of frame. And then the actual actor then stands up into frame mm-hmm. to create the illusion that they're the person that jumped off the building. This sketch is a lot of cowboy switching. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sometimes she's dancing with this person in a Muppet suit. And then other times she is mauling basically a stuffed animal. <laughs> It does sort of remind me of the uh, can't take my eyes off of you bit, if if only in, you know, tone. Oh, the Ruth Buzzy? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, it is it is similar to that, which is interesting about how much entertainment at least used to be found in men and women beating each other up. Well, something that's a through line throughout this episode, and I think we'll probably touch on it a little bit more in some of the coming uh, scenes, is you never really feel like Rita has the lower hand. Even if it's something that might be problematic by today's standards, there's a degree of savvy there that doesn't... If she's not in control of a given situation, she's at the very least a top contender for being in control of the situation, which I thought was an interesting thing to keep in balance. Rita doesn't take shit from anybody. <laughs> um, and this uh, is, is how I kind of interpret it. But yeah, she... And you're right, though. What they did to make it a little different from a traditional Apache dance sequence is... Her lover, I guess, the Frenchman, is hitting on Piggy. Mm-hmm. What she's trying to do is both get his attention and punish him for it, I guess? Yeah, there's a lot of room for interpretation there, in terms of what the exact nature of their relationship was. There's no dialogue and no lyrics. It's all musical. And, and that's the thing, too. We, we, you talk about Rita Moreno, and she's most famous, I would say, for you know, her role in West Side Story. And uh, in this opening sequence, it's all physical humor on her part. You know, you would expect maybe with someone who won an Oscar for a musical to come out with a big musical number. But instead, she it's a great piece that there may be some people that find it a little 
upsetting just because of the violence towards women. But to be fair, I think she gets the best of him way more. And I think she initiated it as well, if I remember correctly. Oh, she does. I don't, again, it's not, it's more the optics of it that mm-hmm. may bother people. But again, this is just kind of um, a fun, violent, choreographed tango. But one of them happens to be a Muppet that can be twisted basically into a pretzel by his dance partner. And then we, we come backstage after that and we get our first running gag. So we should get out of the way. The The backstage story is the telephone that's backstage in The Muppet Show. It rings and Fozzie answers it. It's an old type of telephone where the, and I mean old, like even older than me type of telephone, where, where the, the receiver is different from where the speaker. And he picks it up. And he says, Muppet Show backstage, and water sprays out of the speaker. And Kermit comes up and says, who is it? And he says, the water department. (laughs) That's basically the only joke we get backstage the whole time. They subvert it a couple of times, but they're all going to be variations on that theme. Then after that, we get our very, here's another first. We get our very first veterinarian's hospital. And now, Veterinarian's Hospital, the continuing story of a former orthopedic surgeon who's gone to the dogs. You know, Rolf was such a big star on the Jimmy Dean show and such a big part of the Muppets' early success. He was never really a huge star on the Muppet show. But he was always a staple, though. Like, I, he, he forms part of that core concept of the Muppets. He does, but because he's also operated by Jim, he's never in any scenes with Kermit. And if you can't be in scenes with Kermit, you just don't get to be in as many scenes. But Veterinarian's Hospital is kind of his set piece. It's, it's Rolf's show. It seems like a, a tighter version of the dance numbers. The jokes are similar in style. They're more thematized, I guess. But Jerry Nelson plays the announcer. He, he brings us in. Oh, it's, it's a, the announcer sounds like a, it's like a soap opera. Mm-hmm. Right, or like a like a, a daytime drama. General hospital parody. It is weird watching it in this episode because, yeah, you have Rolf played by Jim, but Miss Piggy is played by Richard Hunt, and Janice is played by Aaron Oscar, so it doesn't sound like Piggy or Janice. <laughs> and I think who was the... Oh, Fozzie was the patient. Mm-hmm. That's right. Fozzie was the patient this time. Oh, uh, what do you think, Dr. Bob? I think it's man is sick. You ought to see a doctor. But Dr. Bob, you are a doctor. That's your opinion. I'm getting out of here. Hey, you can't leave, Fuzzy. Dr. Bob is the only one who can save you now. She's right. I saved over 500 last year. What, patients? No, dollars. (laughs) Of course, I also lost over 100 pounds. What, in weight? No, in England. (laughs) But we're going to see a lot of veterinarians' hospital. It's one of the more successful running pieces throughout the whole Muppet show. Uh, I'm a fan of it. When we get to some later episodes of it, they, they do some freaky stuff. I believe Veterinary's Hospital. There's some real adult jokes buried in Veterinary's Hospital. And then like we're immediately backstage again where smoke comes out of the phone. <laughs> Fuzzy, hmm? who was it? <coughs> the fire department. <laughs> I think this is what they call a running gag. And then we get, I think, maybe our first... We've, we've had Muppet News Flash before. Yeah, no, yeah, but our first funny new Muppet News Flash. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think the others have been great so far. A not-quite-Donner-Party reference. This one I liked about the woman who taught her chicken to dance and then ate her. I love Jim's uh, uptight newscaster voice. And what I thought was interesting was then, after the Muppet News Flash, it cuts to Statler and Waldorf in the balcony. Speaking of lunch, I wonder what the Swedish chef has up his sleeve. <laughs> a summons from the Board of Health, I wager. 
they basically introduce the chef, which is, would usually be Kermit's job. Then we get the Swedish chef making some, uh, as he calls them, flap'em jackums, flap'em jackums, some flapjacks. Did you notice something familiar about this Swedish chef bit? I don't know if it's the thing that I was supposed to notice, but when I saw the blunderbuss, I got real nostalgic for Fraggle Rock. The blunderbuss is also what he used in the Sex and Violence episode that we watched. It's him making a hero sandwich, mm-hmm. and at the end, he shoots it with a blunderbuss. And so in this one, the chef is uh, making pancakes, and they keep getting stuck to the ceiling, basically. And then he pulls out a blunderbuss, a blunderbuss, and he shoots it in the air, and they all fall down on him. We had commented when we watched the pilot episode how they had remember how they had kind of chopped up the Swedish chef into like four different bits. Yeah, no, they're they're definitely more cohesive. So that when you got to the end, when he pulls out the blunderbuss and he shoots the the sandwich he had made, it didn't have the enough payoff to it. It felt too interrupted. This is what that skit should have been, right? Very simple. My kid was laughing her ass off. Very simple. Flip it up to flapjacks. They don't come back down. Then eventually he just shoots them out of the sky. I would say this is much more indicative of, of course, what the Swedish chef bits are going to be like, basically, going forward. Sometimes I think they, get, they try to get a little too much mileage out of just silly talk mm-hmm. from him. But, and I, I, have, I, I said I was going to look it up and I forgot. But I, I, will, I promise at some point I'm going to go online and I'm going to look up to see if there are any Swedish people out there that hate the Swedish chef. To see if he... He offends anyone. Then we go backstage again. This was uh, where, where Fozzie goes to the phone and, and then a bunch of coins fall out of it. I legit thought they were going to say that it was coming from the Treasury Department. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that would have been better or worse. The Muppet Show backstage. Fozzie, who was that? Las Vegas. And then we have um, At the Dance. Uh, Janice and Zoot are dancing together. Animal is dancing with a whatnot woman. And yet again, this is not the first time he's dipped a woman to the ground, right? Yeah. Again, it feels kind of off. It feels kind of off these days. It's not out of avarice for Animal. It's out of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where he dips the woman so far that she bonks her head every time. And then Piggy is dancing with uh, some other pig. And there's a shark. Some, some Whatever. It's at the dance. You know what At the Dance is. It's a, it's a song and in, in, uh, bad puns. Okay, this episode has two of my favorite Muppet musical moments. And we get to the first one, which is Tomorrow. Now, this was the UK spot. It's a song called Tomorrow, which is a, a kind of a, I don't know, what would you call it, a nonsense song, maybe? It's, it's a riff on the whole who's on first formula. I don't know genre-wise how to define it, but it's, it's wordplay. Yeah, it's it's a whole song about wordplay where a man is trying to buy a ticket to go to a place called uh, a town in Ohio called Morrow. So he keeps saying he wants to go to Morrow. And it, it's a it's an amazing rapid wordplay game that they're playing with the idea of tomorrow and today and yesterday and all this stuff. And every time he says tomorrow, the ticket taker thinks he's saying tomorrow. Said he to me, now let me see if I have heard you right. You'd like to go tomorrow and return tomorrow night. You should have gone tomorrow, yesterday and back today. For the train that goes tomorrow is a mile upon its way. It's a song written by a guy named Lou Sully, but it was made famous by the um, Kingston Trio, which was an American folk pop group in the 1960s. 
But what makes this particular bit so much fun is it is performed by the country trio. And the country trio are made up of three Muppets that are... Jim, Frank, and I think that was Jerry, right? Yeah, it's 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 a puppet of Jim Henson, a puppet of Jerry Nelson, a puppet of, of Frank Oz. Jim is playing the banjo, Jerry Nelson is playing the guitar, and Frank Oz is playing the stand-up bass. And we saw... We saw the Jerry Muppet before. And the gym. And the gym as well. We saw those before. They were, they were both in the Joel Grey episode. Mm. But this is, these three Muppets, they were actually made for an appearance on the Perry Como show. And they later were on the Thanksgiving episode of the Dick Cavett show. They're these really cool looking puppets that look like Jim, Frank, and Jerry in 1975. <laughs> it's interesting too because Frank doesn't sing in it. It's Jim and Jerry doing the singing. And, which makes sense because Frank was actually the least comfortable when it came to singing. Jim didn't think he had a great voice, but he made up for it in just pure willpower. But he could only sing in character, you know. Frank, it took him a while to get to the point where he was comfortable singing as Piggy. It's a very funny song, but it's very sweet because it's these three key Muppet performers in their puppet forms. Being operated by, you know, they're, basically Jim Henson has a puppet of Jim Henson on his hand. <laughs> Then we, we meet, for the first time, we meet Marvin Suggs and his Muppaphone. In some of the the really early episodes, and I guess the pilots as well, there were sketches that were, it seems like they were there largely to show technical proficiency. Yes. And I think this is the first time they were actually able to bring it home. And like, you had something that was really, really funny, but I don't know what the arrangement was backstage for, I, I assume, each puppeteer handled at least two of the Muppets. I would say probably two. Yeah. But you, you had that initial part where they had to keep switching spaces because they were in the wrong uh, key or in the wrong note, I guess. Yes. Marvin Suggs is a sadist mm-hmm. who makes his music by hitting little furry balls with a mallet and getting them to say owl in uh, different keys. Every time you see a song on the Muppet show, it's the music is pre-recorded. And I actually think the owls and everything were also pre-recorded. I could see that. The whole thing was lip-syncing. I don't think there's like five puppeteers worth of voices in the, that range. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there were too many of them were similar. I don't think that's a mark against it, though. I think it's still a very solid sketch. I, this That's oh, a great sketch. Yeah. I hesitate to say that this might be the first time they really brought it home, but it feels like it was. It's an eccentric character. It's a very unlikable character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's a mean man. These, these Muppaphones are basically his property that he exploits to, to make music. He, although one of them's named after him, if you notice that. <laughs> he calls one of them Marvin. I guess there's one that's a little Marvin. But, uh, and, but this is also Oz is kind of his showiest. This is a big Frank Oz character. They tune up a few times and then they play Lady of Spain. Tuning up. Ow. 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 Ow! Ow! Oh, no! Move it, Marvin! Move it! Move it, Marvin! Move it! Move it! Then a giant mallet comes and knocks Marvin Suggs out. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like that was just, how do we get out of this? <laughs> it was Jim's explosion. I mean, it wasn't an explosion explosion, but... Or maybe just, like, we know this guy, this may be too mean, so we have to have some comeuppance for him as well. I think there's maybe a little bit of that, too. Then we go straight from the Muppaphone to... The panel discussion, which I'm going to let you talk about because you really liked it. Do you, not, do you remember how the panel discussion starts? Kermit hits his hand with a gavel. Oh, right. Yes. Right after Marvin Suggs get hit, gets hit with a mallet. 
It is an amazing cut. I don't know if it was on purpose because, you know, they shot these things out of sequence. They shot them however they could put them together. But the fact that it goes from this scene where Marvin Suggs is hitting these things with a mallet and he gets it with a mallet. And the very first thing Kermit does when panel discussion starts is he slams his own hand with a mallet. Before the show started, I didn't really have a strong concept of Rita Moreno. I'd seen West Side Story, but I'm not cultured and I don't necessarily have a strong appreciation for musicals. And it read to me as what gang warfare looks like in Canada. It's not that far off, no. Like, I, I was really confused by it. That's a whole separate discussion. But seeing her in this sketch, like, I, the initial sketch before this was great. But seeing her go back and forth with Miss Piggy was one of my favorite things that I've seen all month. They, they go they go at it. <laughs> I Like, I was legit waiting for her to pull out a hairband and tie her hair back and just, like, start going to town on Miss Piggy. And there's, like, that inner high school boy of me that's like, fight, fight, fight? Okay, fight. She's playing a character known as uh, called Tiffany Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. Panel discussions are supposed to be civilized conversations. And this week's topic is, is conversation a dying art? And so the entire sketch ends up devolving. What is that supposed to mean? That means one more crack from Joe and Joe Guander enchilada. How would you like to take a flying lip into a sausage factory? Part of the crux of it was that her accent was very hard to decipher, which it wasn't. I'd, my Spanish is bad, so I didn't catch some of the phrases that were in full Spanish. But when she was speaking in English through the accent, you could still clearly understand what she was saying. Whether it's an exaggerated accent or not, you know, obviously it's not her normal accent. But yeah, she was she was she was she was uh, playing it up with a very very thick Hispanic accent. Kermit tries to break it up a little bit, and the second that she actually just clamped Kermit's mouth shut, I was like, okay, I'm just here for the rest of this ride. Whatever she does is fine. I think my favorite line of the bit is when she when uh, she asked Piggy, "How would you like a high heel up your ham hock?" I know that Piggy's got some degree of pot armor, but. I would not sleep on Rita. Rita can probably throw down. Oh, you don't want to mess with either one of them. Oh, no. You definitely don't want to mess with Tiffany Gonzalez. But the thing is, Piggy started that. She absolutely started that. Oh, yeah. They're making fun of her accent. She absolutely does. But yeah, it's a very, it's a very funny bit. And, you know, the joke, of course, being that the conversation devolves to the point, you know, whenever they have these panel discussions, they, you know, it starts off with, is conversation a dead art? And by the end, everyone's screaming at each other. <laughs> So then we go backstage again to the runner. Fozzie answers the phone and, and an explosion comes from it. it. It sort of seems like there's a, a sparkler on the other end of it. Like a, spar like a sparkler. The Muppet Joe backstage. <laughs> okay, who was it this time? The Atomic Energy Commission. <laughs> and then this is followed by a very quick Muppet newsflash <laughs> that I thought was very funny. It felt weird to me because we'd had another one that episode. Like, if that was the only one this episode, I would think it was perfect. Here's a Muppet News Flash. There is no news tonight. And then we have Talkspot. This one is about Rita wanting Kermit to loosen up and not do, like, a pre-scripted bit. Mm -hmm. It was a very funny joke with the cue cards. I wasn't expecting Sweetums to pop out. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know who I was expecting to see. We haven't met Robin yet, and I guess we've seen Scooter, but we haven't met Scooter at this point, but the second Sweetums came out, I was like, is he, is he going to eat her? What's he about to do? <laughs> at the end of the day, I don't know what he does with her. True. <laughs> Kermit, haven't you ever what? noticed on these variety shows when they have a talk spot that mm. the actors always come off so phony? I mean, you oh. know that they are rehearsed. You yeah, but, know that they are reading cue cards. Yeah, but, but Rita, yes. on our show, 
on our, wait a minute, but Rita, but Rita, on our show, we do not use any, uh, Rita, on our show, we do not. Kermit! These interviews aren't my favorite parts of The Muppet Show. Every scene she's in this episode, she steals. I thought this was a solid one. He picked her up like she was nothing, though. I was expecting her to, like, fight a little bit or something, especially after that talk piece. Then we get a Wayne and Wanda bit where uh, Wayne and Wanda come out to sing. Sam Sam introduces them again, I think. They sing Goody Goody, which is a Johnny Mercer song that was made popular by, like, the Benny Good by Benny Goodman. And it lasts, like, 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. As all Wayne and Wanda skits do. Is this the, I think this is the one where he hits her in the face. Yeah. He sings, like, the first line of the song and then whacks her in the face. And that's just, like, the end of the bit. Fozzie goes out and does a comedy act that doesn't go very well. Sattler and Mulder have heckled him. And then he comes back and we finally get the payoff to the, to the running gag, right? <laughs> They're getting real sick of the running gag. And so who comes to take care of it? Animal. Animal just comes and rips the phone off the wall, which is great. Now we get to, I spoke of uh, the feelings that this episode may have created in young Chad back in the late 70s, early 80s when I first saw this episode. They probably come from this sketch. Fever. Now, the song Fever uh, is written by the guy Eddie Cooley and Otis Blackwell. It was originally sung by an R&B singer named Little Willie John. It's been recorded by Piggy Lee, the namesake of Miss Piggy. Uh, Elvis, Madonna, Christina Aguilera, Beyonce has done it. We talked about this before. There, there was a bit with Menomina. Oh, maybe, maybe it was on. Maybe it was on Ed Sullivan. There's an Ed Sullivan bit where there's a string quartet and Menomina comes and joins them. <laughs> Animal will do this a lot, right? Where Animal will be in a musical number, but his heavy metal soul <laughs> won't let him play slow music. It starts off with Floyd and that great bass line, and then you pull back and Reed is there in a sexy dress. And she's singing Fever, which is a sexy song. But behind, over her, over her right shoulder is Animal playing the drums. And um, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, the, the interplay between her and Oz, you know, he's inappropriately drumming during the song. She calls him on it, too. Well, yeah, yeah. What he should be doing is just keeping, like, a steady beat. But he puts in little flourishes and little top hats and little, little drum rolls. And then she goes back to him, and she lays into him in Spanish. Oye, buddy. Nada más quiero decirte que no se debe hacer eso. It's not nice. ¿Entiende? Mírame a mí cuando te hable. Este es mi número. Y si tú me fastidias más, te voy a dar una gasnata que te va a bobo. Cool it. Listen, buddy. All I want to tell you is that you shouldn't do that. It's not nice. You understand? Look at me when I'm talking to you. And she, like, grabs his face. This is my number. And if you bother me anymore, I'm going to hit you so hard, it's going to leave you stupid. Cool it. <laughs> so then she comes back, and as she's walking back, my favorite moment is as she's walking back, Animal goes, <laughs> like mocking her. Oh, yeah. No, Animal was... <laughs> Animal's not having it. <laughs> Animal was basically an elementary school kid who just decided he didn't have any respect for the adult in the room. And then she goes back into the song. And it's again, it's that sensual song. And then at the moment when it gets to the, the chorus again or the, Brit, the hook and Animal's about to hit the drum, she looks over her shoulder at him and he freezes like, I'm not doing it. And then as soon as she turns back around.
and Frank's perfor- Frank's performance in it is so great. The way as Animal Cheeks drumming and drumming his body and his head. I mean, he's like his he- banging his head like he's a member of Pantera or something. Just wailing on the drums. And so Rita told him just, she's going to hit him so hard it makes him stupid. <laughs> and so she goes and she grabs two giant cymbals and smashes him <laughs> between them. Leading to Get my kind of woman He says as he uh falls unconscious. Uh basically knocks stupid. It's great. It's a perfect combination of like showing off her skills, a great song, but it's just so funny. Her comedic timing is like I haven't I need to see more stuff that she's been in, but it's really sharp. I mean, I watched Electric Company when I was a kid, so, you know, um, I, I knew her from that as well. That's what's crazy about her, right? She She's an Oscar winner, Tony winner, Emmy winner, uh, a Grammy winner, and then she spent six years on a, on a children's television workshop show, The Electric Company, teaching kids how to read. It's not a surprise that she won an Emmy for this, right? No, this is a really solid episode. And then uh, at the closing, Rita comes out with her uh, French boyfriend. <laughs> The ragdoll version of him. Mm-hmm. And kind of throws him away. And then, you know, everyone comes out and we say goodnight. The backstage story is lacking. The phone gags were never more than like half a minute, if that. Yeah, less. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if that was like a, a consideration based on the other things. Yeah, they're also just trying to figure it out. with another great show for you with our special guest star, Mr. Jim Neighbors. And all of this, all of this is coming to you, by the way, from the Benny Vandergast Memorial Theater. Uh, We on the Muppet Show owe everything to Benny, including three months back rent. Nick, I know you're a big Jim Neighbors fan. Tell me all about him. That's actually presently true. He seems like he was a really, really sweet and genuine guy. I'm going to ask everyone listening to forgive me if I mispronounce this. Jim was born in Silacauga, Alabama. I really hope I pronounced that correctly. On June 12th in 1930. Uh, his dad was a police officer. There was no mention of his, his mom's employment, so she might have been a homemaker. He had two older sisters. Uh, he sang throughout high school, and he also sang for his church. Until he got to college at the University of Alabama, uh, at which point he started acting in skits. Immediately post-grad, he was a typist for the UN. He only did that for about a year uh, before he moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee, to be a film cutter for NBC. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, that's cool. This is weird to me, but maybe air quality was different then. Asthma caused him to move to Los Angeles, where he continued to be... (laughs) Sorry, that's... (laughs) Times might have been different. I don't know. Yeah, but in the 70s, that's when the smog was bad in LA, wasn't it? Like, it's, got, it's cleaner now than it was then. True, but I'm, I'm thinking, if, he, if he's immediately post-grad, he would have been about 22, so that would have been the 50s. Oh, uh, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it, it was common practice for people who had any kind of respiratory condition to go out west, right, to drier air, you know, Colorado or New Mexico, I, I guess, I guess Los Angeles, no, known for its lovely crisp air. Anyway, he he moved to Los Angeles, and he continued to be a film cutter, but he also sang and acted in a cabaret review at this place called The Horn. Um, He sang baritone, he he spoke in a higher pitch. He was invited to participate in the Steve Allen show, but it got cancelled 
Shortly after that, Andy Griffith would later come to discover him at the Horn uh, in Santa Monica. I've definitely seen the Andy Griffith show. I don't remember much of it beside the theme song. That's fair. I've seen a good bit of it. If you got Nick at Night, you can check it out, TV Land or whatever. But yeah, I've seen I've seen quite a bit, but it's it's definitely before both of our times. On the Andy Griffith show, he didn't. I think he created the character um, while performing in the Cabaret Review, but he he became well known as Gomer Pyle, and he would reprise his character on a number of different programs. Uh, but he was supposed to be a one-time role, and due to the popularity of the role, he became a series regular from 1964 to, excuse me, 1962 to 1964, at which point the, he was standing in for another actor who was out sick. The actor, the other actor came back and he ended up spinning off into his own show, which was Gomer Pyle, USMC, standing for United States Marine Corps. And he was on there until 1969. An interesting thing about that is this is concurrent with Vietnam, but people tended not to draw issue with the show because it wasn't necessarily pro-military or jingoistic. It was more about his relationship as a foil to gunnery sergeant Vince Carter, played by Frank Sutton. He got his own variety show for about two years, from 1969 to 1971. The thing is, due to Gomer Pyle being such a a popular character, he was kind of typecast. Or not kind of, he was definitely typecast pretty often. In the original run of The Carol Burnett Show, she had him on the first episode of every season because she thought he was her, her good luck charm. He actually had overlap with one of our hosts from the last episode of the podcast, uh, Ruth Buzzy. They were in a kid's show called Lost Saucer, where they both played androids that traveled through time with a couple of uh, kid characters. Okay, now I kind of want to see that. (laughs) I'm not sure how to imagine it. It's either Mork and Mindy or Fantastic Max. He did three films with Burt Reynolds, uh, Cannonball Run 2, a movie called Stroker about uh, Reynolds being a NASCAR driver, excuse me, Stroke Race, and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas with Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton, which I haven't seen, but I feel like I'm obligated to. The great the great Dolly Parton, who may save us all because she helped pay for one of the COVID vaccines. It's weird. I, I was aware of her before five years ago, but I didn't have a strong concept of her before five years ago, and now she's basically up there with Mr. Rogers. Do you know she has given away millions upon millions of books to kids? Yeah, I did. She also wrote... I believe Jolene and I Will Always Love You in the same day, which is insane. She's also a hell of a songwriter. While Whitney Houston made the song most famous, you know, she wrote one of the biggest songs of all time. There was an Andy Griffith show reunion called Return to Mayberry, which was filmed in 1986. Jim's last TV role was in 1991, where he performed on the Carol Burnett show revival. He continued touring around and performing after that but he didn't really want to do much on TV anymore. To to skip back in time a little bit, he moved to Honolulu in 1976, and he owned a macadamia nut farm for about 25 years before he sold off most of it to, I think it was a, a preservation organization. And he married his partner, Stan Cadwaller, on January 15th, 2013, uh, shortly after, I think it was in Seattle. It was shortly after gay marriage was legalized uh, in Washington. He died November 30th, 2017 at his home in Honolulu. The Pence family, uh, our current uh, vice presidents, expressed grief at his passing. And I believe he was given an honorary rank for the U.S. Marine Corps, which is practically unheard of. You you missed one thing. Oh? What's his, what's his catchphrase, Nick? I want to hear you say it. <laughs> 
He's got a few. I read them. I didn't listen to any of them, so I'm not sure which one. Golly! Golly! There you go. There you go. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah. I feel weird. No, J- Jim was actually, it sounds like he was a pretty cool dude. Oh, yeah. No, the thing is, he was typecast as a sweetheart, and I, I think that there's something very genuine about that. Yeah. He seemed like he was just really happy to be wherever he was. He also had a crazy voice. He did. Like, he had this Alabama drawl that they do make fun of. There's a whole sketch in this episode that makes fun of his drawl. But then when he opens his mouth, he's Pavarotti. (laughs) That absolutely caught me off guard. I think a lot of this episode was sort of leaning into the, the Gomer Pyle persona. And I watched it before... I'd done the research on his background, so I didn't... It was fine, but a lot of the the added context didn't necessarily land with me because I wasn't familiar with him as a character. Episode 106, Jim Neighbors, again produced in June of 1976, aired in September of 1976. Directed by the same guy that directed the last one, written by the same guys that wrote the last one, so that's pretty easy. No new faces this time around? Kind of. You're right, there's kind of a new face. He's been on the show before, but we're going to introduce him. Back for the very first time. The backstage story of this is is good, but it's weird, considering the order in which we watch these shows. The opening number is a song called Money. It's a Stan Freeberg song that uh, Jim had previously used on Salmon Friends. And it's just Dr. Heath singing a song about money. This one, I think, is also a little bit of a show-off piece, because it kept cutting to the shots of his hands playing the piano. I was trying to suss out how they did it because Dr. Teeth has these really long kind of like spidery arms and it looks like Jim is operating the head and someone else has got both of their hands on the piano, but there's still like the long arms that go from the hands to the puppet. And I thought I saw a glimpse of like a black sleeve underneath. So like the, the puppeteer has like black on black sleeves on their arms mm-hmm. and they're operating the hands, but it blends in. There was like a solid half second where I was expecting to hear Pink Floyd and very surprised. And I was like, wait, the timeline might not match up. I have to go back and see when that song is actually released. So then we get to the backstage story and Kermit is backstage and a young orange man appears and introduces himself. Hi, are you Kermit the Frog? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm Scooter. Cute, cute name. We have already seen three episodes with Scooter in them. The reason why the, he's in the first two episodes, those episodes were those pilot episodes that they shot and they recut. And so all of the Scooter stuff in those episodes was shot after this episode, aired after this episode. So if you were watching them as they aired, it would probably, it probably made a little more sense. I'm your new gopher. Gopher? Uh, no, no. We have frogs and pigs and chickens around here, but we've never had a gopher. Matter of fact, you don't even look like a gopher. <laughs> Yeah, well, you don't understand. You see, I'm your new gopher. Yeah, I'll go for coffee. I'll go for sandwiches. I'll go for anything you need. Listen, Scooter's a little twit. Like, I'm a huge Scooter fan, but early on, he's a little brat. Because he's got one answer to everything. Yeah, well, I work real cheap, and I got plenty of ideas for your theater, and I'll start tonight, okay? Uh, listen, kid, I'm sorry, but uh, you're too young, you don't have any experience, and I don't have any money for it in the budget. Yeah, well, my uncle owns this theater. Uh, you start today, get me a cup of coffee, your salary is 20 a week. Stand by for the next number. <clears throat> Could you make it 25? Are you kidding? I can't afford it! Oh, gee, my uncle will be really disappointed. How about 30? Part of the concept of the show is this is an old, rundown theater. Right. And they're barely making their bills. You know, 
what's built into the show is they're not a success. <laughs> it's the same like derelicts in the audience every week. If you look at the failure that is Fozzie's stand-up and the failure that is Gonzo's stunts and how Wayne and Wanda's bits keep going. Whenever Wayne and Wanda come out to do a song and deliver some culture, it goes horribly wrong. Their drummer can't contain himself and ruins numbers all the time. They're not a, a class A outfit. <laughs> you know, this, this place is a dump, basically. So Scooter's uncle is basically a slumlord who is renting them this theater. So now we're now Scooter is here and he is now going to be Kermit's gopher for the rest of the show. But he will never hesitate to remind you that he is the product of nepotism. So we get a um, uh, talking house sketch. Very boring joke about one of them getting shingles. I thought it was half clever, but yeah. Then, now you didn't see this, but there is, because uh, it's not on the DVD, and I find this nuts that it's not on the DVD. Maybe it's a rights thing, but the next number is a huge number starring Jim Neighbors, where he sings a song called Gone with the Wind, which was like a hit song back in the 30s. It's like a standard. And it's him and a female whatnot, and he's singing this song to her, and he's using his huge Jim Neighbors opera voice the entire time. Gone with the wind Just like a leaf that has blown away Gone with the wind My romance has flown away He's singing this song called Gone with the Wind, and the wind starts kicking up. And by the end of the song, basically the entire set and his co-star and his, and his pants have been blown away by the wind. And he's basically standing there in a shirt and his boxers at the end. I don't know why it's not on the DVD. It's weird because it takes out, like you were talking about, how the show kind of plays to Jim's Gomer Pyle-ish nature. Mm -hmm. This sketch doesn't. This sketch is actually highlighting his, his voice, his singing voice. And it's completely chopped. When the show aired on Nickelodeon, that's where I have it from, is copies from the Nickelodeon airings. It's so crazy to hear that voice come out of his mouth, by the way. Especially after hearing him talk. Well, yeah, because he's got this thick out. Al now, he's got that Alabama accent that I think he's accentuating a little bit. It's a little bit affected, and it's, it's fine because he's... Yeah. He's going to repile. Yeah. Then we get a Muppet News flash, and the Muppet Newsman is actually interviewing a guy named Billy Lee Boomer <laughs> about a flying saucer that he saw. There's something about this as well that sort of shoots forward to the early aughts. Because there's this recurring gag on Family Guy where a Canadian guy, I think he was Canadian, would always be interviewed by a newscaster and talk about something that was going on while he was trying to get intimate with his girlfriend. And it would always end up with something like, there was no way. But it, I, I'm not sure if it was partially inspired by this, because it felt the same. He interviews Jim Neighbors, playing a country bumpkin who saw a, uh, an alien, who basically just came by the gas station to use the bathroom. The next two scenes that were in the episode are also not on the DVD. <laughs> There's a, a moment where K Scooter brings Kermit his coffee, and he accidentally spills it on him, and it's hot, but Kermit's more upset because it's got too much sugar in it. And then Su Scooter convinces Kermit to put on an, a, an act. And again, he always uses this, uh, well, my uncle likes it. And he puts on an act called The Dance Arrows, which is basically a, like, like a, a furry four-legged Muppet that does a dance, and it's and then at the end of the dance, his legs get all tangled up and it falls down. Does it to a song. I forget. I, I don't have the name of the song in front of me, but it was basically, it was the, the song was the flip side of Sweet Georgia Brown. It was the B side for Sweet Georgia Brown. I watched it today. It's not very funny, but there's probably f three, four minutes that aren't on the DVD. And it's just weird to me. 
Then we get a little blackout segment. Jim telling Animal to break a leg for his next performance. And of course, Animal takes that literally with a hammer. So the whole backstage story is this new kid is here, right? Mm-hmm. That's the backstage story is Scooter the new kid. Kermit introduces Scooter to George. I thought it was a funny bit where George starts bitching about the theater. Listen, kid, I've been with this theater since the very beginning, you know? Before that new guy bought it and ruined it. (laughs) Now the roof leaks and the seats are torn, the furnace is on the fritz. I tell you, he is the worst. Yeah, he's my uncle. He is the best. (laughs) What's a theater without problems? Right. Your uncle's got a good head in his shoulders. Oh? Unlike some people around here. We have uh, At the Dance with Zoot. Zoot, there's a, there's a line where Zoot and Janice, I thought, was kind of a dirty joke. Uh, do you believe in the hereafter? Oh, yes. Ah, then you know what I'm hereafter. <laughs> I feel like the show's probably going to try to slide a lot past the radar if they can. So then we get to, the, to this week's UK spot. And in the UK spot, we meet an old friend. We Actually, we, it's, a, it's a reunion of an old duo. Rolf and Baskerville the Hound together again. But not, they're not selling Purina this time. They're singing a song called Dog Eat Dog. It's just a, a Jim playing the piano and Jerry Nelson playing Baskerville. I couldn't find anything about the song other than it was written by like a guy named Edward Kastner, who was like a record executive. But besides that, I couldn't find anything about where it was from. But it's got a little, it's got, it, I don't know. It's okay. What did you think of that one? It's all right. It was clever. The cannibalism bit was interesting. <laughs> Then we have a talk spot with Jim and Kermit where Jim's talking about how he feels at home on The Muppet Show because of all the chickens and roosters and pigs and stuff. And then a very horny Miss Piggy enters the scene. Kermit doesn't seem too bothered by it, though. I think, generally speaking, No, he would be happy. He would be happy (laughs) if Piggy found somebody else. The conversation, he talks about being a Gemini, and he leads that to the fact that some people think he's he's Gomer Pyle and he's Jim Neighbors at the same time because he's a Gemini. I guess just kind of like nodding to the audience, basically saying like, we know, we know he's Gomer Pyle, you know, but then Piggy like ravishes him. She's very handsy. She is very handsy. I I guess here was my question. In any of your research, did you come upon the idea that Jim Neighbors was a sex symbol? Because Piggy's like, oh my God, Jim Neighbors. I'm like, really? I mean. (laughs) Gomer Pyle? On one hand, no, but on the other hand, I've heard things about Adam West during his tenure on Batman, so anything, like, I I just assume it was a different time. Burt Ward has some stories. Um, (laughs) Burt Ward, read his book, Burt Ward's book, he's got some stories. I'll have to keep an eye out for it. So then Fozzie comes up to Kermit backstage and he says, have you met this kid Scooter? He's He's been telling me jokes to use and they're terrible. And he tells one to Kermit, Gonzo, and Hilda, I think, and they laugh their asses off. I stay at a hotel so exclusive, room service has an unlisted number. (laughs) (laughs) Scooter! Scooter! We get a Wayne and Wanda appearance. Now, they come out and they sing a song called Indian Love Call. It's an Oscar Hammerstein song from a kind of this musical operetta he made called Rosemary. And I mean this honestly, like, is it is it considered inappropriate now for someone to just for a character to be dressed in what we would consider kind of traditional Native American garb? Uh... Indian Love Call is the sorry is the name of the song. 
And he says like the first line and then an Indian pops in and goes, you called? And that's the end of the bit. <laughs> Which is funny. It doesn't cross the line super hard. It's probably pretty yeah. tone deaf or tone deaf yeah. by today's standards. I mean, I think the the, mo- the the only modern objection to it, I think, would just be use of the word Indian. Mm-hmm. Although it's still, that's still fairly colloquially used, but. It doesn't seem mean spirited. It's just a play on words. Fozzie comes out on stage to do his act. He's got some jokes that uh, Scooter has given him and. Statler and Waldorf challenge him. They basically, they're like, they tell it. Uh, oh, he, he challenges Statler and Waldorf. Basically, he says, I'm going to tell you my best joke. And if you laugh, I get to stay. If you don't laugh, I will leave the show forever, which is a pretty intense bet. And uh, he tells a joke and they laugh. I don't, I don't, I'm really, okay. And they think it's funny. It was, was another cannibalism joke, wasn't it? I don't remember. I don't remember the joke off the top of my head. Two cannibals. One, to- one cannibal talks to another one. Who was that lady I saw you out with last night? The other cannibal says, that was no lady. That was my lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Or something to that effect. A comedy set piece that's kind of reminded me of the Ruth Buzzy interrogation scene. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah. Just in the way it's staged. This is the sketch that like pokes fun at Jim's accent. He's at a table and he's a security guard. Oh, at a bakery, Rolf breaks in, apparently, and then Jim tells him to put up his hands. But because of his accent, it sounds like hens, like put up your hens. And so Rolf pulls up a couple of chickens. And that's pretty much the whole bit, is Jim says something that sounds like an... He, because of his accent, the words he's saying sound like animals. Now, wait a minute, baby. What rat have you got to be here? Oh, uh, what rat do I have? Well, I got, uh, I got this rat right here. <laughs> Well, I guess you do have a rat to be here. It was, it was a tidy sketch. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does what it's going to do. My favorite little pieces is Scooter and Fozzie backstage, and Scooter is slathering Fozzie up, telling him he's the best comedian in the world. And Fozzie loves himself some praise, even though, you know, deep down Fozzie knows he's terrible. And then Fozzie tells a joke, you know, that starts off with the traditional joke structure of, did I tell you about my uncle? And then he gets to the end of the joke, and then Scooter just goes, what about him? Because <laughs> he just doesn't get that they already told the joke. And then we have our closing musical number. It's a John Denver song. I feel like you're going to judge me poorly. Why? Because my only association with this song is the Polly Shore movie, The Son-in-Law. I've seen Son-in-Law. <laughs> I've seen Son-in-Law. It's, it's fine. It's a John Denver song. I don't think he wrote it, but he, he made it popular. Uh, thank God I'm a country boy. It, it's, the, it's the beginning of kind of the Muppets relationship with John Denver which is going to be fairly fruitful in the years to come. But this is the first time they kind of cross. It's him and the, um, the Gugulala uh, Jubilee Jug Band, who I think we met a couple episodes ago. I don't remember it being in Son-in-Law, but... <laughs> I, there's some montage where he uses a, a tractor to carve his name in cursive into a field. I remember it playing over that, but it's such, like I haven't thought about that movie in over a decade I just remember, like, Tiffany Amber Thiessen is in it. Yes, she is. So is Carla Gugino. We remember the cute girls in it. That's a shock. I am not a complicated man. No. <laughs> it's Men aren't complicated, let's be fair. And then we get to the closing, and Jim mentions that Scooter has been following him around the whole time, and he, you know, picked up his coffee, and he picked up my wardrobe. Yeah, I even picked up his accent. Well, God. <laughs> What's funny about Henson is, like, he looked like a long-haired hippie freak, but his musical tastes were very mild. Mm-hmm. 
He liked adult contemporary music. He liked this kind of soft country that was big in the 70s. I don't think I'm going to see it, but I really want Electric Mayhem to cover something by Funkadelic. It would be a really good match. That would be a great match. But but he really liked, and he also liked this kind of Tin Pan Alley type music, uh, you know, that we'll see later with like uh, the music of Paul Williams. It, it's really interesting. He was a little out of sync with the times, um, Jim was, uh, you know, and it said if you looked at him, you think he'd be like, you know, tripping and listening to Joplin. But instead, you know, he would rather listen to some Jim Croce. But let's not forget, he's a kid from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. The fact that he would have an affinity for these kind of pop country songs and folk songs and stuff like that makes sense to me. Next time, songs both sad and old-fashioned. So thanks for listening. Uh, next week, we will be doing episodes 7 and 8 of The Muppet Show with special guest stars Florence Henderson and a very important character in the history of The Muppets, Mr. Paul Williams. That'll be exciting. That's a really good episode. Um, but until then, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And uh, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio. Pay up. They made it through another one. Uh, double or nothing next week's show? You're on. <laughs> Antithesis Audio.